Father, we're so grateful that we have um, the freedom to worship you, that we do not have to hide in secret like so many of our brothers and sisters all across the world, but that we can gather here in public, that we can worship you, that we proclaim the name of Jesus because he has paid for the penalty of our sins. We're grateful, we are honored, and so we ask that during this time, that as we listen to your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you convict us, that you would encourage us, that we may be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, As many of you know, uh, Pastor Kempis is actually away this weekend. Uh, And as always, we always, as a pastoral staff, are talking about, you know, what is the best way that we can use these times when Kempis is actually away? And as we discussed together, uh, one of the things that we thought would be important and helpful is to actually help us to have a better picture of ecclesiology, a a better understanding of what is our role as Christians in the church, and specifically, how should we be thinking about our time together as the body of Christ? And so to accomplish that, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11 to 16. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and open up to that point. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11 to 16. Uh, years ago, there was a nation that was ambushed by its enemies. Uh, this was an ambush that happened unexpectedly and very quickly. Uh, this nation was blindsided by the attack. And because they weren't ready and they weren't expecting it, the nation was slaughtered. Uh, The cities were put in chaos. Uh, Countless people were were murdered and and many families lost loved ones. Uh, People were separated from one another. Uh, It was a very, very devastating time for this nation. And as expected, the military began to train up a new set of recruits. Uh, They wanted to bring up new people that would be the soldiers in the army. And so many of these new soldiers went through the basic boot camp training process. They learned the ways of warfare. Uh, How do you use your weapons on the field? How do you survive when you're out there uh, on the battlefield? Uh, How do you use the correct uh, training? How do you decide when to engage and when not to engage? Uh, They went through everything that you would typically do in boot camp. And then finally, they got to the point where it was time for graduation day where they were ready to actually then take what they've learned and be sent out onto the battlefield and use it in the war. But there was only one problem for this country, is that no one actually wanted to fight. See, what was happening with this particular group is that if you were good enough of a soldier, if you did well enough in your training, then instead of being sent off into the front lines, you would actually be brought back to be the guard of the nation's elite. You would protect the president and the highest people. Uh, You would be the guards that would make sure that nothing happened to the highest officers. And therefore, you would be taken as far away as possible from the front lines. And you would live a life of of comfort and luxury and peace. And so the great irony for this nation is that they were training up all these people. The goal was to become the best possible soldier But for these soldiers, they were being as equipped as possible so they didn't have to fight in the war. The goal was to be the very best possible soldier so you could avoid the whole conflict and avoid the whole point in fighting and risking your life and limb. And though this is a fictional story, it's actually the story of the church. You see, we as Christians have been called into a spiritual battle. Uh, We are fighting a spiritual war against Satan and the dark forces. 
And we've been equipped, as we're going to see in our passage, for the purpose of fighting, for the purpose of ministry. That God has equipped every single saint with unique gifts and giftings to be used for his purposes. But the great irony is even though we have the highest possible calling and the highest possible gifting, people would much rather sit around at church. They would much rather just enjoy pleasant conversations, listen to someone for a little bit, and do absolutely nothing with their giftings. But as we're going to see the whole point that we've been called into the church, the reason that we're here today is because we as Christians are called to do the work of the ministry. The whole point of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is that the complacent attitude which shapes so much of the Christian church today in America is absolutely sinful and wrong. And therefore, I want to challenge you from this text, what are you doing for ministry? Because we as a body, we have been called for the purpose of serving the church, of serving Christ's body. And therefore, if you are a Christian, then you are a minister. You were called to do the work of the ministry. And the question is, are you being faithful to that calling or unfaithful? And so it's with that purpose in mind that we're going to read our passage, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 11 to 16. Paul writes this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the holy word of God. And so, Father, we ask that during this time together that you would speak to your people, that you would encourage us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're unfamiliar with the book of Ephesians, uh, it's actually one of my favorite epistles of all time. Uh, The main point, the main purpose that Paul is getting at here is the high calling of us as Christians. And like many of his letters, he spends the first half talking about doctrine, uh, what we have spiritually in Christ and who we are as Christians. And then the second half is used for application. You know, how do we actually live that out? And so it's in this letter where the first three chapters is used to talk about the great spiritual blessings we have in Christ. That it is in Jesus that we have the forgiveness of our sins, that we've been spiritually united with Christ, uh, even as Tim was talking about during communion. The fact that we have been brought together, and because we are united in Christ, therefore Jews and Gentiles, people who were once enemies, are now brought together as well. It's because of our union in Christ that we as a church are now unified and we're called to live out that unity in very practical ways, uh, which is his focus from chapters four to six. If we are spiritually united in Christ, if we as Christians are part of the same church, what does that actually look like for us practically? And he goes through a number of different examples. Uh, But when you get to chapter four, it opens up this way. 
the first six verses from one to six talk about why we need to be unified, why we need to seek out unity with one another. And he gives seven different strings that bind us together. You know, he talks about the fact that we are part of one body and we have one baptism and there is one Holy Spirit. And as he goes through, it's the idea that all of these truths are what we as Christians believe in. And it is what brings us together. It is what unites us, our common faith and our common identity. And then from verse 7 to 10, he talks about the fact that even though we are unified as Christians, we live out that unity in diversity that every single one of us has been called to live in a different kind of way. We've been gifted in different kinds of ways. And it's this very complicated but very beautiful explanation of what Christ did back in the Psalms as a Messiah. The fact that he is the reigning king, that he has conquered the forces of spiritual darkness and he reigns as the emperor over all. And because he reigns, uh, he then has the authority to give us our spiritual gifts. That is why we have spiritual gifts is because we have been cleansed of our sin through the power of the cross. And so as we get to verse 11 in our section here, the question is, if we have these gifts, which Christ has gone to the greatest lengths to unlock for us, what do we do with those gifts? And that's how we're going to look at our text. What we see here is how and why we should be using our spiritual gifts for the ministry. Uh, This is your ministry mandate as a believer. And to break this down, we're going to look at this as the three elements of the Christian's ministry mandate. Uh, We're going to see first the the people that are involved in ministry. And then we're going to see the purpose of that ministry. And then finally, we're going to see the principles that undergird that ministry. Um, How do we actually need to think about doing the work of the ministry? And so first, in verse 11 and 12, we see the people of the ministry. And I just read the text, so I'm not going to read it again. But in verse 11, it starts off with the leaders. You'll probably notice there's a couple key people mentioned. You have the apostles, uh, the prophets, the evangelists, and then the shepherds and teachers. Those are actually one common person, shepherd and teacher. And so the apostles and the prophets were those first pioneers that established the church. In, In the first century, after Christ ascended to the throne and after he Uh, brought the Holy Spirit upon his people. It's the apostles who were the people that established the church and its doctrine. These were the people that would write scripture and and plant churches all across the different areas, uh, in Antioch and in Rome. Uh, They were the people that were the first leader that everyone followed after. And then you also have the prophets. These were the individuals that would be working in specific churches and areas before the canon of scripture was finished. And their job was to give the revelation of God, to explain what God was saying to those particular people, even as the New Testament was still being written. And both of these offices, the apostles and the prophets, then ceased as an office after the Bible was finished, after the New Testament canon was completed. But then those other two groups, the evangelists and the shepherd teachers, are the leaders that we see even today. Uh, Really, the idea of an evangelist there is a person who goes and spreads the gospel to places where it is not yet there. Uh, You can think of the role of a missionary or of a church planter. You know, someone that is wanting to bring the gospel to a group of people that are not hearing it yet. And their goal is to go to the ends of the earth, to really fulfill the greatest commission in its purest form, to bring the gospel to bear. And that last category is that of the shepherd teacher. 
Um, That's most clearly what pastors and elders today fulfill. The idea of shepherding a congregation, of nurturing a local congregation, helping that body understand the word of God, helping that body understand how to live out scripture in daily life and in practical settings, and to really be with the church and to nurture it over a period of time. It's the goal of those leaders, of all four, but especially of the shepherd teacher, to train and to mature the church. Uh, you see this most clearly in 2 Timothy 4.2. Paul says this, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is, their goal is they take the scriptures and help us, help you as a congregation, understand it, interpret it, and then apply it to your specific situations. These are the leaders that God has given to the church. It was Christ himself who ordained that you would have these leaders over the church who then shepherd the body of Christ. But here's the thing. All of these leaders are not the primary ministers. Right? Read with me verse 12. You have those four different groups, and then Paul says they are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Those groups of leaders, they exist, they teach, they reprove, and they rebuke to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is, they are the ones who train the body. They train you as Christians how to live the Christian life so that you can do the work of the ministry. See, it's not the professionals, it's not the leaders that are called to be ministers, but instead we exist to to equip and train you to do that work. And I know that this is a very counter-cultural idea in the church today, isn't it? Most people see that ministry is something that is just done by the professionals, those who are paid or those who are the elite saints. But if you are a Christian, then you are called to do the work of a church. God has always intended that the bulk of ministry would be done by the average Joe, by the typical Christian and the average person. And it is through your ministry that you see the building up of the body of Christ. It's not simply that we as the leaders do ministry and therefore the church grows, but is that we as the leaders equip the saints. And as you do the work of ministry, then the body of Christ, the church is built up. And there's a very important reason why this can be the case. Uh, See, if you turn back to verse 7 of chapter 4, Paul said, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, That is the word charisma or the idea of a spiritual gift. Uh, There's really two passages in the New Testament that talk most clearly about spiritual gifts. Uh, You have all of 1 Corinthians 12, and you have Romans 12, verse 6 to 8. And I'm not going to go into a long explanation of spiritual gifts because that's not Paul's intention here. Uh, But just very quickly, you have two major categories of gifts. Uh, The first would be the idea of the temporary and the miraculous. These would include gifts such as the gift of healing, uh, being able to heal diseases on the spot. Uh, The gift of tongues, where you can speak in a language and anyone around you would understand what you were saying. Uh, The gift of prophecy, where you can hear from God and speak the very words of God. Uh, These were all spiritual gifts that existed in the first century, uh, which validated the apostles' ministry. 
The idea is as they were going around preaching the gospel, how do you know that this individual really is true, really is legit? Well, when this person starts raising people from the dead, you start to believe him, right? And that's really the intention of these gifts, of the sign gifts, is that as you use them in that first century, your, your ministry and your message of the gospel would be validated. And so that's the first group. You have that, which is temporary, miraculous. But then secondly, you have the idea of gifts which are permanent and meant for ministry, meant for equipping the body, equipping the church uh, to grow closer to God. These include gifts like teaching, being able to explain the Bible so well and clearly to people, uh, the gift of exhortation, where you can take the Bible and you can help a person out in their specific situations and encouraging them and exhorting them and how they need to follow after God. Uh, you have the gift of service, a person that is willing to just go above and beyond the call of duty to help and serve the church. And I think very clearly about those who give up their time, even after work or taking the place of work, to come here during the weekday and help the church. You have the gift of giving. Uh, someone that doesn't want to just give God a 10% or some random amount, but wants to give generously and sacrificially above what would be expected of them. You have the gift of faith, a person that knows how to just trust God in the midst of the hardest of situations. You have the gift of evangelism. You know, every Christian is called to evangelize, right? Every one of us is called to share the gospel, but the reality is some of us are better at it than others. And the gift of evangelism is the idea of a person that just has that natural persuasion intact to know how to share the gospel in any and every single situation. Uh, there are so many different sorts of giftings that God has given to the church, and I'm not going to go into very detailed explanation of all of that. But Paul's focus in this text, and so therefore my focus is to just say this, that you have spiritual gifts as a Christian. Right? Looking back at that verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 4.10. He says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift. That is the idea that if you are a Christian, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you have some kind of gifting from God. That through the Holy Spirit and through Christ, you have been endowed uniquely in a way that other people next to you do not have a gifting. And therefore, you are called to use that because all of the gifts of God are necessary and valuable for God's purpose. You, know, you can think of the relation of these gifts like an orchestra. You know, I'm a musician. I grew up playing and listening to it and being taught how to appreciate music. And one of the things that I love the most is going to a live orchestra where you hear all of those different kinds of instruments blending together in this beautiful harmony. Uh, you know, you have the, the strings as they blend together in their different ranges, and you have the brass, you have the percussion working together, and you have typically a pianist. And then you have the conductor that stands in the front and orchestrates the whole thing. And what I love doing as I've gone to orchestras is just picking out how all of those different instruments go together. You know, what are the strings doing in this section? What are the brass doing in this section? And as you hear that, it just brings together this beautiful melody, this beautiful uh, piece of music. 
And that's exactly what happens when the church is together. It's the idea that all of us have been gifted uniquely and differently. And yet, when we come together in the ministry of the church, it comes together in a comprehensive kind of way. And so what I want you to see right now, and what Paul is trying to say in this first two verses, is that if you are a Christian, then you are a minister. Ministers aren't just those that are the paid professionals, but if you are a Christian, if you have been gifted by God for the work of ministry, he has called you to do the work of the ministry. And therefore, you are called to use your gifts for his purpose. See, I think what's so unfortunate is you look at most churches and they look more like movie theaters than a church. People go and they sit down for an hour and a half and you listen to a talking head talk for a little bit and you hope that you're going to be entertained. And maybe you liked it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you talked to your friends or family afterwards about the good parts or the bad parts. But after the hour and a half, you go home and you're done. And then Monday comes and you do what you want. And then Tuesday comes and you do what you want. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday until it's Sunday and you go for the next movie. The problem in most churches is they look more like a school lecture or a TED talk than they do what the church actually should look like. There's that common saying that 20% of the church does 80% of the ministry. It's 20% of the people that are giving 80% of the tithing. That 20% of the people are doing 20% of the work of the whole church. And that is so, so wrong. I think the, the parable of the talents is so applicable to this reality. If you were to look at Matthew 25, 14, it's a story where a master is going away for a period of time. And he gives each of his slaves or his servants different amounts of resources, saying, I want you to use this for my purposes. And the whole point of the parable, if you study it carefully, is that at the end of the era, Christ is going to come back. And the question is, what did you do with your stewardship? With what Christ gave you, both financially and in terms of gifting, what did you do with that? Did you use it? Did you steward it in the way that he called you to? In the way that would be faithful to what he wants you to do? Or did you just bury it in the sand? Because if you are the typical Christian that just sits here week after week to hear a good, convicting, interesting message, then you are that bad servant and that bad slave. You are called to do the work of the ministry. The question is not, should you do ministry? The question is, are you being faithful or unfaithful to what God has called you to do? And this is why, friends, we cannot live the Christian life only on a Sunday. If all you do for your Christian experience is come on a Sunday morning, there's no way for you to be connected to other people's lives in this church. Have you thought about why we have so many different forms of ministries? Why we have fellowship groups and why we have small groups and why we have various socials and events for you to gather together? Uh, we're We're not just putting on a show. The idea is so that you can come together, that we can come together as the body of Christ and be in one another's lives, to build relationships and to be connected with people, to know the ups and downs of people's lives, to be able to share from the bottom of our hearts what God is teaching us so that we can minister to one another. 
everything that we do in the church and the fellowship groups and throughout the week exists so that you can do the work of the ministry. So that you can reprove, rebuke, and encourage and exhort other people. Because as Paul says, it's the ministry of the saints. It's you doing the work of the ministry alongside the elders and pastors leading that leads to the building up of the body of Christ. We as the leaders of the church can lead all we want and we can teach all we want. But if you are not engaged in the work of ministry, then our ministry will ultimately be ineffective. And so that's why Paul then gives us our second point. Uh, He wants to explain what is the purpose of our ministry? How do we actually do the work and why? And so in verse 13 and 14, he gives this purpose. That as the body, as the church does the work of the ministry, then we as a whole will grow in spiritual maturity. Read with me 13 and 14. He says, We do all of this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of a stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so this spiritual maturity is Paul's goal. That we as a church, we have giftings and we are called to do the work of the ministry to produce spiritual maturity. And you see that maturity in three different ways. It's in a growth of knowledge, a growth in character, and then a growth in discernment. That that idea of growth in knowledge is the idea of growing in a fuller understanding of God's word. Right? Growing in an understanding of theology and of doctrine and of what the Bible actually says and teaches. He uses that interesting faith, uh, that word, the unity of faith. Right? And that's tying back to the first six verses of this chapter. The idea that we grow in an understanding of what unites us as believers. That we understand what it means that we are part of one body. That we have one Holy Spirit. That we have one hope. That we have one Lord Jesus Christ. That we have one physical baptism. And then we have one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. The idea is that when the church is doing ministry, we grow in an understanding of the unity of our faith, of that doctrine. And explains it secondly as growing or attaining to the knowledge of the Son of God. A proper understanding of Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ a proper understanding of his deity and relation to the Trinity, a proper understanding of Christ's perfect character. And so when the leaders lead and the church does ministry, we help one another grow in an understanding of doctrine and of knowledge of the word of God. And this also produces a growth in character. Uh, the idea of growing in holiness and sanctification, of becoming more like Christ. And and that's captured in that word, we attain to the mature manhood. It's a picture that the, the body of Christ, the church, is literally a physical man. And a mature man is a person that is then fully developed, a fully grown up. That could be physically, that could be mentally, intellectually, And so as the body matures, as we grow in ministry, over time, we become the mature man of the church. 
Uh, we become holy like Christ is holy. We become complete as Christ is complete. That one of the signs of our growth of ministry is that we become sanctified. And that's described secondly in the idea of the measure of a stature of the fullness of Christ. That picture that Christ is the perfect full person. That we are measuring up to him and that over time we see how we slowly become more and more like him. I think you understand this analogy well if you've ever had a wall in your house where you measure a child's height. You know, sometimes what happens is the the father or mother will mark themselves, and typically they're not going to be growing anymore. But then as the years go on, as kids go from four to five to six and beyond, they measure every single year how they're growing taller and taller. And sometimes the kids will look up and see where the parents are, thinking maybe one day I'll become that tall. Maybe one day I'll get to where my dad is. And that's the picture of Paul's analogy here, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That Christ's stature is then full. He is perfect. And we are measuring up to that. We are attaining to the measure of that growth. That over time we see as Christ is perfect, we over time want to become more perfect as Christ is perfect. And so even though we know that as Christians, we will never be perfect in this life, that is still our goal. That as we examine Christ and see his perfection as God, that we want to become more and more like him. And that is done through the work of the ministry. And the thirdly, this growth is seen in discernment. And it's the idea that we are no longer going to be swayed by false doctrine. And this is really the counterpoint to our growth in knowledge. Read verse 14 again. So we do the work of the ministry so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul is saying that we are naturally children. That just as a child, we don't know right from wrong. We don't know truthhood from falsehood. And if you've ever worked with little kids, if you ever taught little kids in any kind of capacity, you know that they don't really know that much, right? I mean, I know even for myself as a piano teacher for many years, I was amazed that I could could tell my students anything and they would believe me. It didn't matter if what I was saying was right or wrong. I could be making up that piano was really done in colors, which is not. And I could tell them that and they would believe anything, right? Because as a kid, they don't have the discernment to hear and to cipher through what they're hearing. Uh, They just take things at face value. And so we as a church naturally, we as Christians naturally are like those little kids that we are naive and we cannot discern. Uh, We're like a person that's in the ocean and you're just tossed up and down by the waves where you have no control over where you go, how high or how low. But that when you do the work of the ministry, as the teachers teach, as the leaders lead, and as you as the body are busy doing that work, the body as a whole grows in discernment. He says that we no longer are like children, that we no longer are tossed by the waves here or there, that we are no longer deceived by the false teachers that are crafty and trying to deceive people. But that we as the church, as we grow in an understanding because of the ministry of the saints, we then have a safeguard against other false teaching. 
That you can hear a, a Benny Hinn or a Shaq movie and know what is good or what is bad. But that requires that the ministry is doing, is being done. That you are engaged in people's lives, that you are a regular part of this body, and therefore the ministry can be done. You know, I think about how even practically, if you've been in people's lives, if you know lots of different kinds of people, you're sharpened by them, aren't you? I know many people that are overly brash and cold and harsh. And over time, they're tempered by those who are gentle and gracious. You know, I think of the people that are just theologically all over the place. And now over time, because they hear right teaching and they're corrected, their theology becomes correct. And I think of people that are just naturally legalistic and make things way harsher than they need to be and how they're corrected by people that have a right understanding of our Christian liberty. That we as a church, as we come together, as you serve with your spiritual gifts, the body of Christ will grow. It will attain to what Christ has called us to attain. And that as you use your gifts in ministry, the body will grow in a knowledge of God in an understanding of doctrine, in Christ-likeness, and in discernment against the false teachers. Friends, this is why we exist as a church. This is why we do the work of the ministry. It's not simply to do things, but we want to see this growth in spiritual maturity that God has called us to attain to. And so that was our second area, the purpose of our ministry. And then finally, in the time that we have left, we're going to look at the principles of ministry in verse 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, Rather, speaking in the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I'm just going to summarize this part briefly in two main principles for you. The first is that we need to be people that speak the truth in love. You need to speak the truth of the Bible. You cannot uh, neglect that, but it must be done in a spirit of love. Right? Too often believers don't want to say things that seem judgmental. Or they don't want to say something that seems, you know, overly harsh or wrong. And so as a result, they neglect to actually say what the word of God says. You know, if you've seen a fellow brother or sister who begins to have an affair or is unwed and yet having relations with another person, and you're unable to actually speak the truth of God in calling out that person, that's wrong. Because as the church, we must speak the truth. Uh, we need to take the word of God and bring it to bear on one another's lives. But that also needs to be done in a spirit of love. Have you ever heard of the idea of a cage stage Calvinist? Uh, it's the idea of a person where they understand the doctrines of election and the doctrines of grace, and they become more theologically minded. And what happens when you gain that theology is there is a, a danger of becoming very condescending and very judgmental in other people. Uh, they become almost rabid in a sense. And so the idea of the cage stage is you need to lock them up in a cage because they're going to bite everyone around them. They're just going to judge everyone around them saying how wrong everyone else is because they finally understand the word of God. And that is absolutely 
wrong. As Christians, we are called to understand the Bible. And yet when we explain the truth, it needs to be done in a spirit of love, of tenderness, of gentleness, and of compassion and mercy and understanding. I think F.F. Bruce said it so well. The confession of the Christian faith can be cold and unattractive if it is not accompanied by the spirit of Christian love. It's the idea that you can do more harm by saying right things in the wrong way than if you said nothing at all. That as you do the work of the ministry, as you are involved in one another's lives, you need to speak the truth of the Bible, and yet you must do it in love, with compassion and with mercy. But secondly, Paul reminds us that when we do our ministry, we need to remember what it is rooted in. And that is being rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? The whole letter is highlighting and emphasizing Christ's identity. And we see that especially in our chapter. Right? In verse 7, it says that Jesus was the giver of our gifts. He is the reason that we have these spiritual gifts. In verse 8, it describes how he was the one who descended on the earth. He incarnated and then ascended to the Father's right hand in glory. It says in verse 11 that Jesus was the one that gave us the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists for the purpose of the equipping of the church. And then in verse 12, it says that we do ministry for the purpose of building up his body. That is Christ's body. And as we get to verse 15 and 16, we see this that Christ is both the goal of our growth and he is the source of our growth. The idea is that we are growing into Christ, into him, that he is the goal that we are reaching. And even as we describe that he is the, the standard to which we are measuring up, that we are seeking to become more like Christ, but then also that he is the source of our growth, that we grow from him that the only reason that we can do the work of the ministry, the only reason that we can even be here and have our gifts is because they come from Christ. And Colossians 2.19 describes it like this. He is the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. That the growth we have comes from him And therefore, if you are in ministry, you cannot ever think that you are the source of it all. Ministry should never lead to a person having a big head or a big ego because we recognize that Jesus is the source of it all. That any success that happens in ministry is from him and it's not from us. Everything we do in ministry is rooted and sourced in and grounded and founded in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I think that your commitment to the church will ultimately reveal your commitment to Christ. Because you cannot love the head without loving the body. You cannot separate the two. That as the church, we are Christ's body. And therefore, if you are devoted to Christ, if you are devoted to the head, that devotion will be seen in your devotion to the body, the church. And therefore, if you are a person that's been calloused and half-hearted in your supposed relationship with God, well, it's no wonder that you're not interested in being a part of the church. Because if you understand your role here, then you will serve in the church. 
Paul is saying that you have a responsibility to do the work of the ministry. That the body, the church, is held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And that this growth happens when each part is working properly. That every single one of you are a different part of the body of the church. And that based off of what you do, you are affecting the people around you. You are either contributing to the body or you are taking away And so I ask you, which side of the equation are you on? Are you engaged in the work of the ministry? Are you engaged in this body as Christ has called you to do? My hope and prayer through this passage is that you will have an understanding of your role in the church. That it is not okay to just sit by idly and watch other people. That if you are saved, you've been made a part of this body. And if you are a Christian, then you are a minister. And what you do actually has bearing on the people around you. And I encourage you and hope that you will see how God has gifted you and used those gifts. You know, are you a person that is good with hospitality? That you just want to help other people feel welcomed and loved and warm? Or are you a person that's good, good with working with children and teaching children, explaining the truths of the Bible in a very simple but helpful way? Or are you a person that just has a heart uh, for even helping with music, that God has gifted you with the ability ability to sing or to play an instrument? I want you to see that there are so many different ways that you can be involved here in ministry. And this week, above any other week, we want to make it easier for you. Uh, We've actually revamped part of our website. Uh, It's going to be cbcb.org slash serve. And it's there where you're going, to be see, you're going to be able to see every possible way to get involved in the church. All of the different ministries that we have, all the different ways that you can get involved. Uh, there's even going to be a survey that you can take where you can list the different areas that you're interested in. And then the ministry leaders will contact you directly and see how you can get involved. Uh, the hope behind this project is to say that you now have no excuse not to be involved in ministry. Right? Isn't that the point of the church? And so in a moment, we're going to close uh, with a song. Uh, We're going to sing in response to the truth that we have in Christ. And as you leave, the ushers are going to be standing at the doors with these cards, which explain just what we've been talking about. Uh, They're going to have these little cards, which have an explanation of the call to ministry that we as believers need to be engaged in the church. And there's also going to be the link that you see above, uh, a place where you can be practical in going to see how you can serve. And so what we have in our text here in Ephesians 4 is your ministry mandate. That ministry, that using your gifts is not an option. It is actually your calling in the church. And the question is, are you faithful or unfaithful to what God has given to you? You must remember this, that you are a soldier for the Lord. That you've been gifted and equipped in unique ways. We've been equipped for a battle which we are in. And though this is a daunting responsibility and a great one, I pray and I hope that we as a church, as Calvary Bible Church, will be faithful to this stewardship that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that you have given us And we recognize that we have a very pivotal role to play in this life. 
that we have been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what you have called us to do is no small responsibility. And so we ask that you would work in the hearts of every single person here, that you would convict those who are in sin, those who are disobedient to their calling, that you would encourage those who are being faithful to do the work of the ministry, but that most of all, you would work in the hearts of every one of us, that we would be a vibrant church. We would be a responsible church and that we would be an obedient church that loves you and stewards our gifts well. And so we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name.